Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the 12th century in Suffolk, England. As we move towards the small village of Woolpit, populated with a scattering of wood-framed cottages, the sweet scent of autumn hangs in the air. It's harvest season here. In the surrounding fields, men, women and children are working hard, reaping the precious spoils of the year behind them. It's a special time, but also a nervous one. The crops must be harvested at exactly the right moment, not too soon and not too late. The light is starting to die, and soon sore shoulders and calloused hands will be nursed over a dram or two of drink. There may even be dancing. As the last bundles of produce are tied, figures begin to peel off, heading back to the comfort of the village, but it's not long before the procession notices something odd. Making their way over the ground towards the inhabitants of Woolpit are two tiny figures, children. A boy, it seems, and a girl, a little older, holding his hand. They're tottering, dazed, unsure of themselves. But that's hardly the first thing the villagers notice about them. This is because both boy and girl are entirely green. The first of the harvesters reaches the infant just in time, and the two little ones collapse gratefully into their arms. They're babbling in a language unknown in these parts. Their clothes are odd too, made of a strange kind of cloth, the weave of which has not been seen before. Concerned whispers spread through the group. Who or what are these little people? And what are they doing here? What the men and women of Woolpit wonder should they do with them now? By the time the workers make it back to the village, the children carried in front of them like the strange results of the day's industry, word has gotten ahead. A crowd has gathered and soon everyone is talking about the tiny green children. And welcome to After Dark. My name is Anthony. And I'm Maddie. And yes, we finally got there. We have little green men for you. But in After Dark 
theme. They are medieval little green men. I was listening to that story and I was like, oh, it's a harvest, a lovely rural tale of bucolic bliss. But no, no, we couldn't leave it at that. It had to be little green children. Yeah, we've got harvest fields. We've got everyone having a nice time. And then we've got tiny green children, of course. Like, why why wouldn't we? Come on. And like, can I just clarify? Are they definitely children or are they just little people that they interpreted as children? So they're interpreted as children. Uh, I mean, we're going to get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah, much yeah. of this is true? How yeah. much is... Oh, no, all of it. This is all true. It's all accurate. Yeah, yeah. It's all accurate. So, I mean, this is a story that comes down to us from the 12th century and has been reinterpreted since. Uh, but the 12th century is kind of seen as its origin. Uh, it's a story that's set sometimes in the reign of King Stephen, sometimes in the reign of... King Henry, it's unclear, it's, you know, hidden in the mists of time. It's bad for um, me to admit that I've never heard of King Stephen. I mean, I'm not going to admit that I have also not okay, good. <laughs> King it's Stephen. Fine. It's fine, we're not medievalists. I feel like, were there any more Stephens? I've, it's a weird, it's a weird one. It feels it's a not little a very bit like noble King name. Clive. Yeah. yeah, sorry to the Stephens And Clives. And Clive. <laughs> I'm sure you'd make great kings. And viewers of Little Green Men, but anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So we're in Woolpit, which is in Suffolk. It's a medieval village. Now, I love this fact. It's actually, so it's, today we think of it as wool pit. You might think it was to do with maybe the wool trade in the medieval yes. times. It's actually wolf pit I saw originally. This in my briefing notes and I was like, yes, of course. Yeah, it yeah, is. yeah, yeah. So a wolf pit. <gasps> Does that mean it's, the wool it's pack? It's a real, no, no. So, it's the wolf pack <gasps> in Emmerdale. Oh, right in if you know. Sorry, oh, sorry, I'm getting distracted. Okay, That's, okay I'm going to look that up later. So a, a wolf pit is basically a pit dug into the earth with, metal or more often wooden spikes uh, that are sharpened to a point, you know. And the idea is that if you were hunting in the area, uh, you would be able to kind of herd the wolves into these Mm -hmm. pits and they would either die on the spikes or you could kill them once they were in there. So it's a way of protecting your community and stuff. So we have quite a rural community and one that maybe not at this point in the 12th century, but in the past has been surrounded by wolf pits. This is a place that is, I think it's fair to say, kind of wary of the landscape, the danger Mm. the landscape can bring. And into this very tight-knit world come these two green people. And we see this a lot, don't we? Where there's this threat. (laughs) Green people. (laughs) We see see green people a lot. There's this threat. Actually, I have this new green thing for my face that takes away redness. Again, I'm tangent city on this episode. Should have worn that today. Sorry. Okay, let's go again. (laughs) We see this a lot in some of these episodes where danger is lurking around. Not necessarily in the centre, but but around the village and therefore around the story or the history story Mm. in this case, most likely, although (laughs) prove me wrong. There is this danger and the wolves are there and okay, the the, the wolf pits are, are to protect against the wolves. But at the same time, you can imagine a child wandering off and falling into these mm-hmm. pits. Like it's pretty, it could be pretty gruesome. The, the image is just quite gruesome. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, we are in a medieval world here. It's a world yeah. which is dealing in death, disease. Um, we talked about the fact that this is at harvest time. I mean, just the fact that crops can die and then you might starve to death as, a, as an entire village. And, you know, something that we have all across the English landscape, certainly, and I, I guess it's probably the same in Ireland, in Scotland and in Wales, is abandoned medieval villages, villages where people just left because mm. so many people died of plague or the land wasn't yielding the crops they needed that year. And they just went. They just left the buildings, left the homes, and whoever survived went somewhere else yeah. and started again. So there's a real sense of risk, 
I think, in this world. And that's something we have to bear in mind, that that's the context for this story, this history, whatever we want to whatever we want to call it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. the story comes down to us through two separate accounts. And I think this is really interesting because they're both kind of contemporary. So the first one, I'm sorry for my Latin pronunciation, is the Historia Rerum Anglicarum, which was written by William of Newborough. And he's a Yorkshire monk. Okay, so he's writing... It's a history of England, basically, this book, from uh, the Norman Conquest to kind of like maybe 100, 200 years later or something. So history of England over... (laughs) A very small amount of time <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that he's that he uh, you know has some kind of information about. So he writes one account of these green children coming to Woolpit in Suffolk, and then we also have another text which is another monk because of course these are the most literate he people in this writing, period. Yeah. So it's called the Chron. <laughs> yes, go for it. Go for it. It's called the Chronicon Anglicanum, uh, and this is by another monk, a Cistercian abbot this time called Ralph of Coggeshall. Ralph. Uh, Up where? He- of Coggeshall, but he's based in Essex, so he's a little bit closer to Suffolk. And I think generally people take his account as potentially being the the more accurate of the sure. two. Um, there are little differences between the two stories, and I think that's important, thinking about how stories like this, whether they're true or not, how they spread in the medieval period. Mm. And it's interesting that it's both monks writing about yes. them. I think it gives a sense of... You know, people maybe coming through those monastic communities either as religious figures or, you know, as people seeking some kind of help, people traveling, people trading, that this is a story that people want to talk about and that is spreading. I also think as soon as you say monk related or that it has some religious connotation, mm-hmm. there's a lesson in here that we're supposed to be learning and yes. I'm sure we'll get to this. There is a warning, there is a there, there is something to guide us away from something old, likely, and towards something new. And I'm sure that might become apparent as we go through. Yes, absolutely. However, I will say that it's not necessarily presented, at least on the surface, as that by these monks. So William of Newborough, the one who the monk who's writing in Yorkshire yeah. about this. When he writes about it, he actually kind of says, I don't know how true this is. I'm dubious about this. So there's a sense that this is a story that's being taken at face value. And then the people writing it down are at least a little bit inquisitive. So he says, you know, I'm kind of, it seems, he says the word ridiculous. He says, I think it's ridiculous to give credit to a circumstance like this. I think it's really important that we take that for a second because Mm -hmm. there is this belief that medieval period the dark ages Mm -hmm. is this I can hear medievalists gasping everywhere at you saying the dark ages they're they're shrouded in this ignorance Mm -hmm. and and we we think with the distance we've come so far and we know what Mm -hmm. beliefs are and we've landed on what the beliefs are that we need to we're the the, the civilised people but at the same time these people were thinking along the same lines with Mm -hmm. a lot of this kind of thing. So I think it's really interesting that William, I have a feeling yeah. Ralph is going to not be that person, but William <laughs> well, seems William to be definitely is a little bit like, <laughs> yeah. mm, I'm not really sure. Um, but he does say, having said that, he is cynical, oh, but he no. does say, at length, I was so overwhelmed by the weight of so many and such competent wis- witnesses that I have been compelled to believe and wonder over a matter. William. So he's like, mm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, but so many people Could claim to have seen this. So... I don't know, but there is there's doubt, there's suspicion. This is a story everyone is talking about. Mm. Okay, so we have Woolpit surrounded by the Wolf Pits. Yes, we have them bringing in the harvest, and we have these two children coming through the field. And the most Green notable children. thing about them <laughs> is that they are apparently 
green. Okay. And not just green skinned, green clothed. Everything. Like they are literally just green. They are also, green. just to, to, again, I'm sure this will come up, but just to put a pin in it for a moment. Aliens. Medieval aliens. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The children, apparently brother and sister, are taken to the house of a local knight, Sir Richard de Carn. There, it quickly becomes clear the pair are in a dreadful state, virtually starving and exhausted. Food is brought out for them, bread and ale, but they brush it away, refusing to eat despite the concerned protests of those in Sir Richard's household. Finally, they spot some green beans and gesture that they would like them. The beans are split open. The children hungrily devour their insides. But it will take more than this to help them. The boy in particular is languishing. His skin is now a pale green tinged with grey and he's weakening by the hour. Sir Richard insists that the pair are baptised. Then, afterward, the boy dies. The girl, however, is stronger than her companion. Over time, in Sir Richard's home, she learns to eat ordinary food and even to speak English. She's questioned and, when pressed, gives an account of how she and the boy, her brother, came to be there. They are, she claims, from another land, St Martin's, a place where the sun does not shine and where everything, absolutely everything, is green. She and the boy were tending to their father's cattle, she says, when the herd wandered into a cave. They went in after them, only to hear the sound of church bells ringing from within. 
They followed the sound and found themselves stepping out into a shining, bright world. Dazzled by the light and disorientated, they had walked for hours through the fields before being discovered. No, just no to this, because I have many, many thoughts. Number one thought is... No. Number two thought is... There is a child rotting in this story. That's that he goes from a, a green to a grey to a expiring. St. Martin's Martians. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. St. Martin's Martians. Oh, interesting. They are aliens. Okay, so, the, so well, I mean, they didn't know anything about Martians, but like, okay. it's just interesting. So hold that location I in will. your mind. Where? St. Martin's or Martin's? St. Martin's, okay, yeah, not yeah. the Martian's. Okay, I mean, yeah. also, potentially, okay. hold that in your mind. Um, so I want to kind of do two things with this. I think the first thing we need to ask is, what does this story mean to the medieval people yeah. that hear it? Because to us, it is quite hilarious. These children are green and they only eat green foods. Oh my God, yeah, I was so disappointed. I was like, and then there was green beans. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah, sake. yeah, And once the girl who survives, once she stops eating green things exclusively... She becomes good for her, civilized, mm. quote unquote. Also, normal. feeding children ale, that's fine. Just medieval period. Medieval times. Probably yeah. healthier than the fresh the water, water available. Yeah. So, you know, I'd take it. I'm going to run through some theories with you, oh, some yes. ideas, some elements of the story that I think for the medieval people, and we can talk about later theories in a minute, but for the medieval people, I think this is what they would hear okay. in the story. So, the first thing, okay, the first thing, green man. What do you mean? So, the green man is a folk oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. character yeah. Um, and someone who is kind of comes in and out of Christianity and it's really hard to see what his position is. So uh, he does appear in a lot of medieval churches yes. in sculptures, you know, in the ceiling and the stone in the wood. And um, predates this? Well, I mean, he's a bit of a mysterious figure. He's yeah. probably pre-Christian. Yes. Um, and certainly he's understood now to be like separate from that but someone who wanders in and he's mm. very much part of like contemporary reimaginings of folklore yeah, yeah, yeah. but you see him in other medieval stories so you see him in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight so for yes. anyone who doesn't know that plot very briefly this is a very very basic <laughs> boiling down no, of what is me in a really complicated story <laughs> um, but it's you know Christmas Eve and King Arthur's uh, knights are all gathered to celebrate and in comes the, the huge green man and he's kind of made of nature. He's got ivy for a face and all this stuff. And he challenges someone to chop his head off. So Gawain's like, this is easy, I'll do that. And he says, if I survive, I get to cut your head off in a year. And Gawain's like, well, that's not going to happen. Chops the guy's head off, only the head rolls away and the green man just walks after it, picks it up, puts it back on and says, see you next Little Christmas. Little did you know. You know, and it's, I mean, it's a story about lots of things, but it's a story about rebirth, regrowth, nature's cycles and things like that. So I kind of, my initial thought for the story was green man, nature, they've there's, come there's out of the There's a land of green people. Yeah. Well, not necessarily a land of green people, but just that it's an idea about oh, nature. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. we're, this story is taking place during the harvest. Yes. People are very much interacting with the landscape. There's an idea of that relying on those cycles so mm. much. And this idea of, you know, you're so invested in rebirth, you want your crops to grow the next year. So what does it mean then that I, I'm, I'm the reason I'm sticking with this a little bit is because it's such a it's actually I, I, I'm laughing about it, but it's such a strange and unsettling image of this green child going less green than grey. So what that feels like it's potentially not nature related, that it's something more moralistic. Mm, or that simply he's nature dying. 
you know, yeah. you talked about him rotting a minute ago. I, I see that, it which as I rot. hadn't well that's so interesting because yeah. I hadn't thought of that. And I think the fact that they need to devour only green things, healthy, fresh food that's yeah, green yeah, that's, to survive. And yeah, that yeah. he because but no, doesn't... because then she takes the, mm. the 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 whatever human food and the ale and stuff, and then she's so she's fine. So yeah. it's it feels to me like they're saying, it feels to me like they're saying this is the death of this should see the death of the old way that this young boy Ooh. represents the. You, you you would have believed in these silly things, this these ridiculous mm. things these to go back to things, William. These pre-Christian, yeah. pagan Now watch things. them die away oh. and here, come my way, be this little girl mm-hmm. and we shall nourish you, we shall feed you, we shall civilise you, we shall give you language with which to speak. And baptise you. He and baptise you. So we'll talk about these Christian elements because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're really important. But some other ideas that I want to go through before we get there. Are they foreigners? They speak with a different language. Yeah. Are they simply children from elsewhere who've been brought in you know the medieval period we talk about this community being very insular being very small but this is the era of crusades this is the era of international trade it's not necessarily as isolated a world as we previously imagine it to be are they simply is this just representing a fear of otherness a fear of foreign actually what what might a green person be to somebody who's not seen somebody from a, another land? Yeah, or is something this else? something about race mm. specifically? Um, food as a key theme here. Obviously, thinking about the harvest, bringing things in, that reliance on food. Yeah. There's also an early modern idea, and I guess this probably goes back into the medieval period, if not earlier, of this idea of being you are what you eat. And they are There's green. There's a TV show on that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Historic version of who you are. You, uh, if you're out there and you're a producer, get in touch. The children almost exclusively eat green things. They say they, well, the girl says they come from a green land. Presumably all the food is green. green too, yeah. And once she eats things that aren't green, the bread, the ale, when she starts to accept mm. that food, she loses her green colouring. Mm. So is there something there just more broadly in the medieval world about food? Again, because we're so in that period so reliant on fresh food and it's so easy for it to become corrupted there aren't the same ways of storing it you know if you're storing grain or whatever after the harvest then there's always the risk that rats will get into it and that kind of Mm. thing there's no refrigeration my Um, only query on that point would be I wonder what their concepts of freshness were in relation to and I'm talking about fresh food in relation to our concept because obviously we have a really big thing of, of food that's been tampered with in terms of hormones or in terms of pesticides whatever they don't have that same thing so and obviously you're talking about rat and disease, which is obviously very, very pertinent and life and death for them. But all of their food is kind of fresh in a way. Yeah. But but yeah, nonetheless, I think it has to feed into something got to do with that. The food seems to be hugely yeah, yeah. important to this story and to mm-hmm. how they're surviving or not surviving. Yeah. Next up, this might be my favourite bit, the bit I'm looking forward to, the cave in the story. She talks oh, about yeah. the fact that they get to Suffolk to Woolpit yeah. because they come through a cave Yeah, they followed some cows in Obviously, green cows green, presumably I mean yeah. everything in their world is green yeah. they follow these cows in they hear some bells uh-huh. Christian Christian church bells yeah. and of course think about the medieval soundscape at this point yeah. bells are to call you to worship yes. and to raise alarm yes. and to mark high days and holidays mm-hmm. they are a sort of magical useful part of the world they are spiritual they Mm. are functional there's something you're going to hear a lot of yeah so their power i think would have been understood 
yes. by people listening to this. And, and it's regulation. They, and that they compel you yeah. to follow them. You, ha- you must do this now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So interestingly, this isn't the only story in the medieval period about people going through a cave, hearing bells and coming and out, coming out into a different world or accessing a different world. Now, the idea of a cave as a kind of portal, you know, that's something that is almost universal in human culture. And definitely we see it in like Neolithic and prehistoric cultures, people leaving uh, weaponry in caves, uh, as well as, you know, other liminal spaces like streams and that kind of thing, L- leaving that kind of offerings or, or leaving the dead sometimes. Yeah. So it's hardly unique to this period. But the story... The other story that's really famous from this period comes down from the antiquary William Camden, who writes, to be fair, a little bit later in 1586, about a cave that today is known as Peak Cavern in mm-hmm. the Peak District up in Derbyshire. In the medieval period, it was called the Devil's Arse. Okay. I mean... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I like that it's an arse of all things. Could have been and anything. I'm going to read you William Camden's words here. And oh, go on. I think he was having a bit of fun with this cave. So <laughs> Well, I wonder. <laughs> He'd want to have something with the devil's arse. Yeah. <laughs> so the, this is, the stories that are coming out of this area are very much the same, that people are being drawn into it and they are experiencing different worlds drawn when they get into in the there. Devil's arse. Yeah, so he, he says... He says, the devil's arse gapeth with a wide (gasps) mouth and hath in it many turnings and retiring rooms wherein, forsooth, Gervais of Tilbury, whoever that is, whether for want of knowing the truth or upon delight he had in fabling, hath written that a shepherd saw a verily wide and large country with rivulets and brooks running here and there through it and huge pools of dead and standing waters. So he says that there's a, a shepherd who is drawn into the cave and sees an entirely different world in this big gaping devil's arse. And this, there's, <sighs> there's loads of accounts of it, the wind passing through the devil's arse. It's, you know, hilarity. Gaping? Ensues. Do we have to use gaping? It's what William Camden says. William. It's historically accurate. So this idea of caves being magical spaces, being spaces where you could access a different world. Yeah. And I suppose as well, if we think about medieval society... We talked about the church bells, you know, representing sort of civilization, regulation. Mm-hmm. The church is the center of everything. It's where you go to get married, to be baptized, to be buried. Um, if you go to any medieval church in Britain today and you look in the porch, there's all kinds of graffiti left yeah. in there, prayers from Porches ordinary are people. They're incredible. Yeah. Don't even get me started. That's a whole other episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, but people would do things like um, do their business deals in the porches of yes. churches and leave a piece of graffiti almost like a signature as a way mm-hmm. of sealing that with with God as a witness, you know. So these are incredibly important spaces that regulate all aspects of life. Caves are kind of the opposite, the natural sort of yeah. architectural opposite mm-hmm. of it. Um, and they're spaces where I guess you could go to misbehave if you're an outlaw, if you wanted to And we to know have, people do. Yeah, if you wanted to have extramarital sex, you could meet your partner in a cave. You could, um, you know, children can go and play without the regulation of their their parents there. There's just all these different sort of opportunities that a cave represents. So I wonder if, for a medieval person hearing this story, the cave is naturally a place of otherness. It's something out of the way. I think it is. I think you're right there. I think that holds danger, promise, excitement, it's a tantalizing fear almost it's it's too it's almost too provocative not to want to know what's in the cave gaping and all as it might be absolutely 
let's talk about Christianity now. So we talked about the bells yes. calling the children, calling them from the world they live in. Now, interestingly, the girl does say that in St. Martin's world, where she's from, mm-hmm. everyone is Christian. But of course. the knight whose household she goes into does insist that she's baptised just to be on the safe right, side. Right, right. He doesn't really believe Green that. Christian is not the same as Christian Christian. Exactly. Yeah, yeah like, come on. We've mm. got to be Woolpit Christian yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're in Suffolk now, guys. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think I think the most obvious interpretation for the story is that it is Christian moralisation. That it's yes. these two uncivilised, othered children. They are young enough to be moulded into... Woolpit's idea, this community's idea mm. of civilization, of good Christian upstanding members of the community. Um, and the fact that the girl, so she's described, sometimes she's called Agnes, by the way. Sometimes oh, she has name. a name, sometimes she doesn't. I mean, who knows yeah. if she even exists at Agnes all. Agnes turns up as a name an awful lot, doesn't it? It we does. hear it a lot in stories, particularly in stories that we don't actually know names. So it's mm. it's a bit of a Jane Doe name sometimes. Yeah, it's a lovely name. I like yeah, yeah, Agnes. Yeah. yeah, it's nice. Um, so there is a description that she stays in the community, yeah, in Sir Richard's household as a servant. Interesting that she's given that status. Yeah, mm. so she's you know she's not put too highly. Yeah. She can't come into this world and be and inserted what, too high yeah, in the hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. But she's allowed a little bit of respectability and protection as well uh, in the household. There is um, in some versions of the story she does get married. So again, kind of moralistic, like she slots into the role that women should have in the medieval Mm. world. uh, If you're in the lower classes to be subservient, literally a servant in this case, and to be part of a household, to be a wife and maybe a mother. Um, What I think is really interesting. So Ralph of Coggeshall, who was one of the the chroniclers, um, he describes that, you know, he says she enjoyed continual good health. uh, She ate various kinds of food. She lost her green colour. But... She remained slightly loose and wanton in her conduct. <laughs> Get over it, Ralph. Yeah. But again, I think it's just that she retains that idea of uncivilization, yeah. and especially as a woman. Yeah, that's, that has been in my mind, actually, going, why does the story have her survive? Mm-hmm. What, what is the... Why should she... The What's the narrative drive for her to survive and not mm. for the young boy to survive? Because she needs to comply. As a medieval woman, she needs... Now, we need to be upfront about the fact that medieval women had certain forms of agency. That Mm -hmm. is something that um, I'm thinking in terms of commerce. I'm thinking in terms of the world of work and uh, finance and household management, uh, the economy of the household. So medieval women did have a certain amount of agency and it's, it's it's a bit of a myth that they were totally subservient nonetheless in relation to men and boys they far more was expected of them yeah absolutely and the fact that she serves Sir Richard that she becomes someone's wife and that it's her loose and wanton behaviour that still is the problem even though she's slotted into this world and she's as you say kind of given over to the roles that are assigned to her she still retains an element of of unruliness that's mm. hard to hard to Christianize and hard to sort of quash in her, I think. Yeah. Good on you, Agnes. Yeah, go Agnes. Green, green Agnes forever. Um, right, is there another piece to this story? Are we So so actually, this is the last that we hear of Agnes, that she mm. is uh, you know, a bit of a pain, causing trouble in the village, but that she is settled in. And the story kind of peters out, which to me, because of course the most interesting thing is their arrival and the fact that they're green. And once the boys died and she conforms and becomes non-green, there's a sense that we've lost interest. And to yeah, me yeah, that yeah. says maybe it's not a real story. Well, it's definitely not a real story. 
She was green, Maddie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not saying that she was green. I am saying maybe there's some kernel of truth in this. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, with most of these things, there is something, right? Like, yeah. there, there, even if it's a local woman who is wayward in the 12th, was it 12th century? 12th century, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then that might just be the, and mm-hmm. she may well have been called Agnes, she may not, but that will have been a core to some of these stories and uh, the greenness may not. The, but... the greenness is an issue. Um, yeah. So we have some later theories about what this story could be. Mm. So in Norfolk in the 16th century, there's this story of the babes in the wood, which is a really similar. And of course, Norfolk and Suffolk, not that far from each other in the I'll big scheme of things. Um, <laughs> they're, they're not. Geography's not my thing. <laughs> um, so the babes in the woods is a kind of traditional folk story from just a little bit after this, a few centuries after. Mm-hmm. But it's the same thing, a boy and a girl lost in the woods. I think they die and they're covered with leaves by a robin or something. Are they like green? They're not green, no. I, to the best yeah, of my knowledge. Gretly. It is, yeah. And it comes into that kind of like, yeah, medieval folk stories nursery tales mm. it's a little bit hard to sort of find the origins Hansel and Gretel get eaten well no they don't mm, they nearly they're do they're not green though no but there's just that consumption thing yeah yeah yes food being an issue um, in the 17th century though we have the first mention of aliens so mm, Martians <laughs> so Bishop Francis Godwin another churchman of course he's a historian and he's a priest um, so when is this sorry 17th century so the 17th century yeah. in the 1620s yeah. this Francis Godwin writes a book called The Man in the Moon Moon with an E on the end love it uh, or yeah the Moony The Man in the Moony uh, or A Discourse of a Voyager Thither and it's a kind Thither. of basically it's a Irish science Discourse of a what? Voyage Voyage Thither Thither <laughs> Yeah. Too many pages. Um, and it's he gives himself a pen name, and he's basically it's a science fiction text. Essentially, right. it's kind of imagining you yeah, know, yeah. outer space people. He references this particular story as evidence. His theory, Ralph's is, story, the Green Children's story. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. So, so Godwin's theory is that people on the moon, you yeah. know, the moon people, yeah, uh, who may or may not be green, beam down somehow, beam me up, Scotty, beam me down, Scotty, people. Children specifically to the human children race, and they exchange them for human children. Right. They're like fairies. Changelings. Yeah, mm. similar idea. Now, talking about this, the race element here. So, Godwin claims that the most prolific place these moon people are beaming people down is on a hill in North America. And he says mm. that most of the Native Americans have been exchanged for their children have been exchanged and replaced with moon people. Wow. What a strange take. So weird yeah. and obviously deeply, deeply yeah, racist. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's fascinating this idea of otherness, otherness. again. Otherness yeah. in terms of human variety and races and then equating that to outer planetary otherness. Mm. So we see that again, which makes me think maybe going back to the Green Children story that there's some kind of human level othering that there's no magical element that yeah. it is just an othering of people from outside that community maybe from outside the racial profile of the people in Woolpit yes. in the 1990s one Paul Harris who was writing for a publication about supernatural strange unexplained phenomena claimed that the children might have been Flemish orphans who were fleeing from a nearby town wait for it so there was a battle in eight, in 1173 and he proposes that maybe their Flemish parents were killed in the battle. The name of the village, though, Fornham St. Martin. If you look on a map, it is a few miles away. Fornham St. Martin in where? England? Yeah, it's a few miles away from Woolpit. Oh, okay. 
So <laughs> half the children come Wait, from down the road. Why were they the Flemish road. and they were down from down the road? Who knows? I don't get it. But he he also says the green skin colour might be explained as a condition called chlorosis, which no. is a kind of anemia no. resulting from dietary deficiency. Although I will say this has been uh, kind of disproved okay, yeah. by doctors well, good. who don't it's really also been disproved that. by me. <laughs> You're saying it's not <laughs> yeah. true. Um, no. So what do you think? Fact or folklore? <clears throat> I think I think there's elements of fact that have informed folklore. Is that it's enough very on the fence? Yeah. Um, Were it, they green? No, they weren't green. <laughs> I want them you to go be away. green. <laughs> no, they, 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 no, no. But I, I am, I still have in the back of my mind this idea of Indigenous American cultures being spoken about as this other as well, and associated with color and different places. So there's something about race potentially there too. Mm-hmm. So there's something, and and women and waywardness and regulation and control. Mm-hmm. All of that is is history. Yeah. That comes together to form this mad green myth. I think that's a good place to end. Well, I'm done. Um, If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and we will be back again next time with another tale of possibly green or multicoloured people. Who knows? That's exclusively what we do now. Send (laughs) us your green people stories. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.